Canada is the quintessential trust-loving country. Our security and prosperity are intimately tied to security and prosperity of both sides of the Atlantic. Our NATO allies are and will continue to be central in protecting and defending Canadian interests and values. Canadians sacrifice blood and treasure to defend freedom and democracy in Europe, and Canadians continue to stand on guard in defense of our allies today. This is Across the Pond, an eight-part series by the McDonald Laurier Institute's Transatlantic Program in cooperation with NATO Public Diplomacy Division, where we explore current and emerging challenges Canada and our NATO allies are facing in a world in flux. I am Dr. Balkan Devlin, a senior fellow at MLI and co-host of Across the Pond. In this first episode, I am joined by my co-host, Damien Arnault, the head of Canada programs at NATO Public Diplomacy Division. In this episode, we talked about what topics and issues we will be covering in the coming episodes. Damien's own journey within NATO, what does NATO Public Diplomacy Division do? How does NATO combat disinformation targeting its member states? What are some of the other key challenges facing the allies in the information space today and what emerging challenges we need to pay attention in the next decade? Please enjoy this first episode of Across the Pond with Damien Arnaud. Hi, this is Balkan Devlen and welcome to Across the Pond podcast, MLI's new podcast series published by the Transatlantic Programme and supported by NATO Public Diplomacy Division. Today, I am joined by my co-host, Damien Arnaud, from the NATO Public Diplomacy, and we will be talking about what this podcast is, what we are hoping to achieve, and why public diplomacy is an important part of understanding how our security and prosperity is defended and protected. First, the name. Why across the pond? The pond here refers to the Atlantic Ocean. It's one way to, as a colloquial way of referring to the other side of the Atlantic, whether you're on the European side or the North American side. Pond is a small body of water, but of course the Atlantic is vast. We don't know exactly when this particular saying became popular. We know back in the 17th century, 18th centuries, Atlantic was referred to occasionally as the herring pond. So it might drive from that. We don't know. But I think what is more interesting here is that despite its vastness, uh, despite the vastness of the Atlantic, uh, the two sides of um, uh, of the Atlantic, North America and Europe, uh, referring to this body of water as a pond, also reflects the closeness of these two parts of the world in terms of security, in terms of values, in terms of principles, in terms of identity. And today, no other institution uh, than NATO actually embodies this closeness in terms of purpose, in terms of principles, in terms of values, in terms of shared institutions. In this eight-part series, we would like to explore what NATO has been doing to defend our security and protect our values, what are the new challenges NATO will be facing in the near future, and how NATO and its, its member states are preparing for those challenges. Like I said, this is an eight-part series, and we will be casting our net quite wide. We will look at the lessons learned, uh, going back um, to the operations in Afghanistan, to the ongoing operations that NATO is carrying out across the transatlantic space. 
we will um, look at the new emerging frontiers that NATO as an institution and its member states individually started to look and deal with, from emerging and disruptive technologies such as artificial intelligence and synthetic biology and the space and the space weapons and, and cyber to the high north and Arctic. Arctic is changing, the climate change is changing the geography and the geopolitics of the Arctic, and our adversaries and rivals are increasingly interested in both commercial and military applications over there. Both the European High North, as well as the Canadian Arctic, is a crucial component of our security here in Canada, but also for the security of our other NATO members. We'll cast an eye to Indo-Pacific and look at how NATO can and should work with other partners and fellow democracies in the region to protect our interests and to protect the transatlantic community. We will look further afield and try to understand where NATO is heading in the next decade. As you know, a new strategic concept is coming up and in 2022, and the focus is on NATO 2030. So we will be looking at how NATO and its member states are looking forward to anticipate the challenges and the trends in the next decade and prepare for that. NATO, as you all know, is a community of democracies. And in a democracy, it is extremely important to keep the um, public informed about why this institution is crucial, uh, this institution is important in defending our security, in promoting and protecting our values and prosperity. And an important part of that is the public diplomacy component, communicating uh, what is being done and what can be done to do the job of NATO. And NATO Public Diplomacy Division plays a, a crucial role here. And today, like I said, I'm joined by my co-host, Damien Arnaud, from Brussels, the headquarters of NATO, to talk about the role of public diplomacy in, in NATO's structure and what are the challenges they face uh, while they're trying to do today's job. Damien, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let me start with asking you about yourself, your own journey in NATO. Briefly, you know, how you end up there and what, how long have you been there? Give a sense of what how you've been doing before we get into the substance of the issues. Let me first say it's a pleasure to be with you on this podcast and, and podcast series, and I, I really hope it's of interest to our listeners. My journey to NATO or in NATO, it's been 22 years since I've, uh, I've joined the International Secretariat here in Brussels. I came from a background of political science, international relations in the University of Toronto first, the Georgetown University in, in Washington. I started my career for a short while in oil and gas in Europe, downstream oil sector, and for, for a consulting firm before joining NATO 22 years ago. NATO has been an incredible work experience. I joined first in as a minute writer in the council with unique access to ambassadorial discussions every week. It's a great way to learn, actually, because you, you very quickly get exposed to all kinds of different topics and discussions. And you also come to be exposed to the ways of international diplomacy and multilateral diplomacy which is a very different animal than, than bilateral diplomacy, as, as you can imagine. In 2006, I think it was, I was named the head of media operations in the press office in the public diplomacy division already. And there for about 12, 13 years, I was responsible for handling basically what I call the choreography 
of, of decisions and, and political events. So when you have a political event, you always have a, a public component to it, a visible component of it. And organizing that for public to understand, for the public to see, for the public to apprehend through through media, typically, through journalists of, of various kinds, was my job. Fascinating job. Media uh, work involves, obviously, interacting with, with journalists to, to answer questions, but it also involves what I call choreography, basically, media events. So that was my work for a while. And then uh, recently... I took a different job, which is more public relations focused, which means interacting with academia, with parliamentarians, with NGOs, with civil society groups in various countries. And, and that's proven to be extremely nourishing and interesting uh, work as well. Excellent. Let me take it from there and ask you to tell our listeners sort of a brief overview of what the Public Diplomacy Division does, its you know, main sort of lines of activities, its particular function. Not everyone is familiar, despite the fact that, like you said, it actually sort of forms the public face and, and a lot of the public sort of facing elements of NATO goes through the Public Diplomacy Division or at least uh, choreographed by uh, and organized by the Public Diplomacy Division. Give us a little bit over about the overview and get it, you know, so that the listeners have a sense what this department does. Over the course of history, NATO is an old lady, if I can put it that way. But over the course of history, public diplomacy has had various incarnations. And it's always been relatively close to the sun in the sense that communicating about alliance decisions has always been quite a sensitive political. Uh. Nevertheless, in the past, public diplomacy has been encompassing different things. In two or three decades ago, it, it involved science for peace work, for instance. In, in years past, public relations was separate from media relations. It's had different incarnations. Currently, the Public Diplomacy Division is a pretty exciting place to work at. The, the division counts about 90 staff. I'd say about 60% female. I checked yesterday that there's about 20 nationalities that make up the staff in the division. So just to give you a sense, out of the 30 allies today, the division is charged with communicating to various publics the decisions and the policies of the alliance. It also, it also has a, an important role of interacting with internal colleagues and stakeholders who are communicating at their own level. So because the NATO headquarters in Brussels is at the top of the, of the pyramid, if you will, it's the political military headquarters, there are a number of headquarters across the alliance with uh, different functions, more military or agencies or strategic level, operational level headquarters. Each of these have their own communicators, obviously. And so NATO public diplomacy has a role in working to ensure as much coherence, as much homogeneity in the message from the different parts of the alliance. Now, of course, what I'm referring to here, the secretariat, the NATO communicators. I mention that because nations that make up NATO, allies, are obviously entirely sovereign political entities who have their own communications agenda, priorities. We encourage them to know what we're saying as NATO, but obviously nations are communicating in their, to their own audiences. The 90 staff, how are they broken down? What do they do? We can talk about functions. We can talk about skill sets. In terms of functions, there are three broad areas in the division. The first is the office that handles press and media in the largest sense. So journalists primarily, with the understanding that that notion is evolving at great speed uh, the last uh, few years. But nevertheless, it's a press and media section with a spokesperson at its head and uh, made up of press officers. Another part of the house is the public relations uh, section, which is the one I, I work in. And as I said earlier, when I introduced myself, this section engages different audiences, parliamentarians, academics, think tanks, 
civil society groups, citizens at the core. And then we have a third section, which is more of a, a service provider. It's called the communications uh, services section. And that is the, the part of the house where colleagues provide technical services, communication services, web ser- website services, web, web services, but also handle all the social media platforms. The uh, editor-in-chief is, is located in that section. So this is this is the third section. Are you the one who's responsible some of these sort of the material being put out regarding NATO operations, for example, and things such as the name escapes me, but there is this quite a nice game that you can actually use with students to um, explore different aspects of NATO and that, what was it called, Natonia? Are you part of that sort of outreach component as well? I'm not because that's the part that goes online. Of course, the the drafting of these products are are a collegial exercise, clearly, because these editors are not experts in everything. But they typically uh, centralize the work and, and then reach out to the experts in uh, the international staff. But perhaps I could say a word about the, the skill sets, because that's also interesting in terms of the variety of skills that Public Diplomacy Division relies on. For the press, for instance, there's obviously press officers who very often have journalistic backgrounds, so who understand really uh, intimately what the journalist is after, how he or she works, what will be useful to him or her. And that's that's one important component. Of course, there's also a part of the house that deals with media monitoring to understand, to have situational awareness, to understand and analyze how the media is reacting to different events, uh, how public opinion is being shaped, what resonates with different audiences. And so there's analysis that one can do about these things. And then maybe a third skill in the press office is to do with event management, as I mentioned earlier, understanding the competitiveness of the the photographers, for instance, commercial photography companies is is hugely important for international institution that aims to be uh, neutral, that aims to be balanced between commercial entities, but also without being seen to favor any particular ally. The international staff obviously speaks for all allies or or on behalf of all allies anyway. And so it's important to be seen to be as neutral as possible and to be as neutral as possible. So that's another skill set. You really have to be good diplomats. And that's also a very crucial skill. Whatever you do seems like across the, the public diplomacy division, whatever your particular role is, you still also need to be a skilled diplomat to be able to balance between 30 allies and sometimes competing uh, priorities and, and preferences. Balkan, you're absolutely right. This is a key component of what we do. But another one, which is more in the PR part of the house, is the ability to articulate something complex into simple terms. Not everybody has the time to read up on NATO every day. And NATO is in a complicated business. International relations is very fluid. It can be a tense environment. It's an environment where decisions have a lot of impact on a lot of people. War and peace stuff, uh, crisis management, these, these are important topics which are complex. And so the communicator's job is to make that not simplistic, but expressed in simple terms so that people can understand what the stakes are. I mean, to me, the value of what what you guys do at the public diplomacy is quite obvious, given, like I said in the introduction, a community of democracies, NATO being a community of democracies, is very important to keep that it's public legitimacy and the support uh, for this institution that I think is, is central in our security, and that's definitely the case here in, here in Canada. A constant, a proper communication of, of why this is an important part, delivering that to, to the publics, and is, is, is very important um, in my understanding. When you look at from Brussels, and when you're engaging well with all these all these activities, what seems to sort of stand out for you in terms of, of importance? What's the sort of the most important aspect you believe that the public diplomacy division serves for NATO and for the allies? 
Thanks. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I think probably a couple of points. The first is we're working for the Secretary General, who is working for 30 shareholders, 30 allies. And I think our job when we try to explain NATO policies, NATO decisions, our job is to ensure that ultimately the public support is strong. And that is because in democracies, without public support, it's hard to keep policies going for, for very long. So I think public support is a strong element of why we feel our work is important. Another one, perhaps, is going back to the idea that defense is a complex notion. Perhaps a second element in terms of why we think communication is important here in, at NATO HQ is the fact that security is something that many people require to, to live their lives. And, and I would say this is true of, of the citizens in our countries, but also of the policy uh, makers uh, in government. The sense that uh, NATO tends to the security of the allies, cares about it, works towards it, is a hugely important thing to make known so that policymakers, citizens, groups of all kinds understand that this is going on and that they can not rest completely. I mean, there's no such thing as 100% security, but you know that there's an institution of repute that is seriously dealing with this, I think, is, is an important component. And, and standing on guard in that sense, uh, in a vigilant sense, uh, ready to, to protect the public, you know, like you said, a billion, almost a billion people. One of the, of course, the central issues, at least in the past five, six, seven years, is the rise of disinformation campaigns. We know that this has been going for you know, for ages, so this is not nothing new, but it came back to the public awareness, maybe since uh, 2013, 2014, in a much, uh, much stronger way, with our, our adversaries, uh, Russia primarily, but increasingly China, trying to destabilize and subvert institutions and engage in disinformation campaigns, not only targeting individual nations and individual allies, also NATO as an institution, different NATO operations from you know, Operation Reassurance to other, other various operations around the world. And that has become a, a central issue for concern for the public, uh, for the policymakers, for everyone else. How does NATO PTD, well, how does NATO combat this disinformation, this, this targeting NATO members, NATO itself, uh, any particular examples that you can, you can sort of share with us in pushing back and fighting against this, this series of disinformation campaigns? That's a good question on disinformation. Of course, in an ideal world, NATO communicators would be busy just explaining NATO policies and not really having to fight the disinformation fight. We can probably agree that disinformation is linked to the development of social media in the, in the broader sense, post-truth phenomena, which is probably older than just 2013, 2014. Not, not much older, but I would probably date the rise of this phenomena a few years earlier. But but be that as it may, I think at NATO, we, we try to be active in the, in the information landscape. And how is that? Well, for a start, we, we recognize that disinformation is an issue. For instance, in the pandemic uh, these last 18 months, I mean, there's been a, an infodemic, we, we call it sometimes, that has accompanied this, uh, this sad pandemic. But what we do is uh, seek to counter disinformation, not by engaging in it as much as by uh, rebutting it. And how do we do that? Well, first, we are engaged in the landscape and we devote considerable resources in media monitoring to be aware of what's going on and to identify uh, instances of disinformation when it occurs. Second, we are unapologetic about rebutting tendentious reporting, false or fake news. To set the record straight, NATO has a lot of facts at its disposal in terms of our own activities, our own decision-making, 
There's obviously a military element to what we do, and so there's a lot of confidentiality, which is sometimes uh, easy to instrumentalize to make rumors and things like that. And, and NATO has a, an important role in setting the record straight in that sense, and we do that by having a very busy press office, which issues public statements all the time and also is in touch with journalists uh, all the time, literally. And then perhaps third is a stable, sort of calm approach to communicating proactively on NATO policy. So when there is a decision in the council, it's not always... Uh, quick or easy, but when there is a decision, we talk about it. We say the allies have decided this or the allies have decided that. And so you'll see the Secretary General engaging the media in interviews, but also in press conferences uh, quite, quite regularly, uh, which isn't the case of other political entities out there. So I, I think it's a triptych, yeah? Being aware, rebutting, and communicating proactively. And I think it's also fundamental to continue to build that trust the way I see given the sort of the social media uh, landscape and how it is developing, being a trusted source would continue, its importance will continue to only increase in the future that that you know that you can trust the information coming from that particular source, that it is not being twisted, that it is not being sort of uh, biased in a particular way to, to manipulate. And I think maintaining that trust uh, with the alliance is a fundamental aspect, that, that emotional connection is fundamental in, in combating that disinformation, knowing that that people can rely on things that are being communicated from NATO. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know what? It, it's interesting. I'm just thinking as as you're you're talking now. I was talking earlier about how having 30 shareholders can be sometimes quite complicated to evolve consensus, but it's actually a plus in certain respects, perhaps in in communicating that are being the target of disinformation out there where you have different allies able to explain the same thing with their own words in their own languages, but always saying the same thing. You know, this is what we decided. This is what we're doing. It can be quite compelling. It's difficult to maintain rumors or disinformation or, or false truth when, you know, very different countries will say, no, this is actually what's going on. That's extremely important because that, that actually, you know, sort of combats one of the most pernicious rumors and debates and, and conspiracies about NATO being a tool of this country or that country. When you see that, you know, the same message and the same content, same idea emerging, the newest ally, Montenegro, to to the oldest allies, you do realize that, you know, it's uh, not what others or adversaries are saying. Maybe let me wrap up by asking one final question. Sort of looking ahead, what are the sort of the emerging challenges uh, in the information space that we need to pay attention in the next decade? We talk about deep fakes, artificial intelligence, you know, further sort of fragmentation and the creation of bubbles in social media and how people interact with each other. When you look from your professional perspective there with, with you know over two decades of experience within NATO and dealing with an information space, what are the new things that are coming up we need to be paying attention to? In terms of challenges looking forward, I think there are obvious challenges for you and me and, and every citizen out there engaged in in, in the information world, reading newspapers or social media walls or, or platforms. And that is how to get out of the bubble, right? To ensure that we are reading efficiently varied news sources to have a critical opinion about what's going on. But that's for, you know, citizens. In terms of the institutions and NATO in particular, I think I, I see, yeah, a couple of challenges, maybe, maybe two or three. The first, as we've mentioned a minute ago, is disinformation, obviously. That's a key stake, I think, to ensure that we are not taken for something we're not, that we are explaining things enough, clearly enough to uh, enough people so that the, the reality is perceived properly. A second challenge maybe is to do with the tools. We endeavor to reach out to as wide an audience as possible, but we recognize that that, that audience is very diverse. 
And so using the right tools is, is a key challenge for us. It's, it's an important stake to be successful in what we aim to do. But it's complicated because tools are, you know, a dime a dozen. They're, they're constantly evolving. And so staying up to date, staying aware, not only of the technological developments, social media, different information tools, how to communicate and to engage people, but also in terms of staying aware of what audiences use what tools, you know, uh, so that we reach out with, uh, to them effectively. So that's, that's a very important challenge institutionally for us, I think. And then perhaps I can mention just on a more philosophical basis, perhaps, is how an institution like NATO handles the, the time variable. You know, NATO communicators are, are very aware of the tyranny of time, the fact that answers are always awaited immediately, you know, that the news cycle is, is uh, 24-7, that, uh, you know, my question to, to you, Mr. Spokesperson or Miss Spokesperson is, is, you know, for yesterday, <laughs> I needed it yesterday. So we're very aware of this. We operate in that environment. Nevertheless, NATO is a political military organization. And whilst uh, decision-making can be quick, you know, if it is required, consensus building takes time. A decision that involves the military organization of, of 30 allies, it means moving a lot of parts. And so a decision might not be visible or its effects may not be visible for a little time. Confronting this requirement for immediacy with the time delays of, of an institution like NATO, which again, engages in fairly momentous things. You know, it's, it's not, we're not selling shampoo. We're engaged in, in crisis management. That's a difficult challenge that we are constantly facing. This is a fantastic point. The increasing demand for you know, immediate gratification, facing the reality of the difficulty of diplomacy and consensus building and the importance of taking one's time when making decisions of life and death, of war and peace, the need for deliberation, which takes time uh, rather than you know, shooting out a tweet or, a, or, a, or an Instagram post uh, as, as people demand and how to square that circle is a, is a fantastically tough job. So, but I would say that you guys are doing a you know, fantastic job in, in, in trying to square that particular circle, but it's tough. Damien, this has been a pleasure and I hope our listeners also enjoyed our first episode of Across the Pond. I'm very much looking forward to co-hosting the, the following episodes with you where we go more in deep into different areas of NATO responsibility and looking ahead at the future of the challenges that NATO is, is going to deal with in the coming decades. Thank you very much, Balkan. I really look forward to working with you on the future podcasts.